0: We're coming to Malachi. I've got the slide up. That's a good start. And I don't have all the pages of my sermon, so it's going to be shorter. (laughs) Although some people know that it goes even longer when I make it up as I go along. Hello, my name's Richard. I'm part of the leadership team here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you gave us. We thank you for thousands of years of men and women we believe writing down your inspired word to us and father we ask that we might learn something about it this morning as we look at this book of Malachi father we thank you that your word to us is always relevant and uh, we ask that there's something for us this morning we pray this in your son's name amen okay let's look at the next slide well, there we go. Malachi, as Jim said, easy to find. Go to the start of the New Testament, then go back one. This is the last book in the Old Testament, as we have it. And what's interesting about Christians, many Christians are really good at knowing about the Old Testament history um, from sort of Genesis through to about David, and then it all gets a bit hazy. Oh, the monarchy, you know, the books of Kings and Chronicles. Um, Jim's our expert on that. He teaches that at Word of Life. And uh, maybe it gets hazy because things get a bit sort of difficult during that period. It's hardly the shining light. And uh, so there's a timeline. The scale is not um, consistent. Well, i got to stand here because I tend to wander around and then people whinge that the recording has these long silences when I'm standing <laughs> over here. Um, so you can see on the uh, timeline, um, Abraham, Moses, David, those gaps are not um, even. And then suddenly the kingdom divides, It all sort of fell apart under Solomon's sons. Um, the northern kingdom broke away, that's Israel, the Ten tribes they were called. And you can see that that line's pretty short and it disappears um, at about 722, 721 when they went into exile. The Assyrians took them away and they basically integrated and never came back. The bottom line, the blue line, talks the southern kingdom. It goes on longer. A couple of the major prophets are noted there, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then it too falls, about 587, 586 BC. It went into exile in Babylon. You probably remember the stories of Nebuchadnezzar. And a remnant, a small percentage of the people, the families that went into exile, came back uh, gradually over the next century. Um, Some came back earlier, some came back later. Um, There's a prophecy about the temple Uh, The exile being 70 or 72 years. That's the period that the temple was not being used. And so there were people back before that period concluded. And then you can see Nehemiah marked there and that will be important in a few minutes. Next slide. This is the bits that I haven't got notes for. Something went wrong with my printer. We've had our grandchildren staying. We had six children under five staying for a fortnight. If you think you know what chaos is like, you may have to come and see our house. Um, who tidied it up again. But my granddaughter, who's 18 months old, loved coming into my office and pressing buttons. (laughs) And she, the printer's down at her level. So every time I went in there, something had happened to the printer. So I don't know what she'd done to it, but it's printed most of my sermon, but not all of it. Anyway, I'm making it up as I go along. This is a timeline. It's one bloke's impression of the timeline. There's a bit of debate about how some of these prophets fit in. Um, Some of the ones before 721, if you can see the numbers there, were prophets to the Northern Kingdom and some to the Southern Kingdom. Um, After the Northern Kingdom disappeared, of course, the minor prophets spoke only to the Southern Kingdom. Um, And then you can see in 586, uh, the start of the exile, and uh, Obadiah falls after that. There's a lot of debate about where Obadiah fits. Um, It's a really interesting book. I've preached on it here. Um, it's really written to the Edomites, and we don't know where it fits. A lot of people put Obadiah earlier. And then we have some prophets that appear right at the end of our Old Testament, and they are the minor prophets who spoke to the returnees. So we've got Pagai, Zechariah, and then Malachi listed there at the end. Okay, next slide. Was it the last book written? Well, we don't know. We do know about how it fits in in terms of its dating. Now, the problem with Malachi is that for many years, people wondered if this was a real bloke. The word Malachi in Hebrew um, is actually messenger of me. In fact, angels are often used by that term of Malach. And it's a bit confusing because the word melech is king in Hebrew, and they don't have any vowels, so you've got this sound, mm, and the difference is between the guttural H sound they've got and K. Um, So it sounds very much like my king as well. But this is my messenger, and a lot of people thought, well, maybe this is just um, a, a, a sort of anonymous bunch of documents that have come down to us. In fact, when they look at the latter parts of Zechariah, which is the book immediately before it, some people considered that Ezra, when he was putting the um, Hebrew Bible together, has sort of come across a bunch of prophecies and sort of thought, what do I do with these? And he's tacked a few onto Zechariah and then he's put the rest of them in a bundle and called them my messenger. Um, The problem with that, in a sense, the flaw, is that there is no other book in the Bible that has pseudonymous authorship, Um, All of the other minor prophets have the names of the prophet, and so it's not consistent. However, it's possible, though probably not my leaning. Um, We know nothing about this man at all, and it's a male name. He's not mentioned anywhere. There are no kings. There are no events mentioned in the book of Malachi that allow us to sort of firm up exactly how it fits. The question that comes down to us, does it matter if we don't know anything about him and it's sort of basically, possibly anonymous? And this comes down in part to the opinion of the way you read the critics. Now, many people are very suspicious of Bible critics and they know that some of them aren't Christians. And those sort of people often are extremely valuable academics And they come to the Bible in the same way that me might come to, say, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. An ancient document, they read it, they look at it. And some of these people are excellent textual critics. They're very good at looking at documents. And if you read commentaries, you may note that there are, they sometimes talk about this. Sometimes they just assume that you know. But there are things like historico-critical criticism. There's form criticism. There's source criticism. And there's a thing called looking for the Leben. All of these things are really helpful, but some of them we're a little bit dubious about. So, form critics, they look at what sort of document it is. Psalms, you've got, are they songs, are they poetry? Um, is it a prophecy, is it oracle, is it narrative, is it, well, what's the point? Is it history, what's it trying to do for us? And often that's very helpful in the way we approach the text. Source critics, they often get a bad reputation from... Um, evangelicals, they try and look through the document and see what's been cherry-picked to make the book. Some of you may be aware that for the Torah, there's this JEPD documentary theory that says this Yahwistic and Elohistic and Deuteronomic and priestly documents, and they put them all together, and they look for bits and pieces through it. It's a challenging theory. The Sitzim leban people, they go and they try and work out, what was its use? Um, you know, what did they actually use this document for? So, for example, the book of Esther, it's now used as the readings for Hanukkah. Now, we don't celebrate Hanukkah, but it's very important to the Jews. Um, with psalms, they look at individual psalms, and they say, what did they do with this psalm? And some of them, they say, oh, well, these they sang as they went up to the temple, so they're called the Psalms of Ascension. You'll find them in a bunch. Some of them are called coronation psalms. That looks like they're talking about the king And they seem to occur at the beginning and end of sections of the psalms, which is broken into five books. The historical critics, well, they try and look at the background. And in a sense, most evangelical critics tend to be the historical ones. They're looking for what was going on at the time that this book was written. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. So, you possibly are a bit like me, and I'll declare my position... I'm probably what's called a canonical critic. Um, It's a name we've sort of been made up and some academics don't like it. Canonical criticism says that we've been given this document and it's gone through a lot of processes, but ultimately we believe that God has inspired the document as we have it. And so the fact that, in a sense, the Old Testament priesthood, about 200 BC, we think, Included Malachi in what they call their canon, C-A-N-O-N, means that for us it's authoritative. It means that it's inspired and it means that we include it as part of our documents. Now, the New Testament, it went through a process of uh, inclusion in the canon. And in a sense, the idea of the canon is a little bit of a circular argument because we sort of... We believe it holds authority because we believe that it's um, inspired and that's just sort of how it works and you can talk to me about that later if you're interested. The interesting thing is that there is still some degree of argument about what we include in the canon. And believe it or not, Luther wanted to throw the book of James out. Now, Jim would be terrified if he did that. Very sad. Doesn't want to lose his namesake. He likes that he's preached on it. Um, he didn't like james but the new testament would be much poorer if we left it out um, in the early few centuries there was a, a bloke that i would regard as a heretic called marcion he wanted to throw out all of the old testament he only kept, kept very little he kept luke and he kept paul he kept acts i think and he threw all the rest out so that's a pretty limited canon um, he had his reasons for that so in a sense what we've done is we've come down to what we believe is the canon, we believe it's inspired and so we accept it as that. So does it matter that we don't know who he is? I don't believe it does. Next slide. So I talked about biblical criticism. What about a date? What slide number is that? Six? Right. Okay. So we're really guessing in terms of our estimate of Malachi's ministry. Um, There is, however, a really interesting kinship between this book and the events of the book of Nehemiah. and That's why I mentioned that on slide number two where it mentioned where Nehemiah fits in. The same religious and social conditions that Nehemiah talks about are exactly what Malachi talks about. And Malachi may have instituted... Um, his social and religious reform program to correct exactly the things that Malachi was preaching and writing about. And it may have been that it was Malachi's sort of needling that made him move in that direction. Now we know the date for uh, for Nehemiah um, because of the documents we have and we've got pretty good dating of the Babylonian kings as well. And so we know that Nehemiah came into Jerusalem 444 BC so Malachi, we think, must be a similar sort of period. It's normally dated between 400 and 450 BC. That's going backwards, obviously, from 450 to 400. And the slide that we had, that slideshow, show the timeline, it dated it at 420, but that's fine. Next slide. OK, so the structure of the book. book is made up of a series of disputes or debates. These debates are going on between Malachi or Yahweh. Malachi is speaking on Yahweh's behalf. And he's speaking to a b- bunch of um, people that had come back from the exile. There'll be a test on that next week. Make sure you read it carefully. Um, stuck at the end of the disputes are a couple of appendices. And you can see that there the disputes. We won't look at those this week because they take too long so the two very short appendices that were read for us this morning are one a reminder to remember the law of moses just one single sentence and the announcement that yahweh is sending elijah before the great and terrible day of the lord next slide okay now the general view of malachi if you read through it you might like to take time to read it this week not very long, they're four fairly short chapters, is that the prophet's main concern was to reassure his people that God still loved them. And I read the book and I find that, that a bit hard to swallow. I'm probably a bit of an outlier but I read it and to me it sounds like Malachi is giving them all a collective kick in the backside to do better. Um, so let's see what we discover. Now we sort of imagine that, you know, these people were thrilled at the thought that they'd come back from exile and everything was rosy and it's a bit like the day you come back to work from holidays. The first couple of hours are fabulous and then you're back at work. Yeah, well. Um, they came back from exile with really high hopes. It was going to be great. And uh, they looked at the prophecies of Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 to 55, and it painted this magnificent future. And they expected the Messianic age to to happen straight away. And it was going to be great. You know, they um, thought that it was going to be heaven on earth. So Haggai and Zechariah, they sort of added to these hopes by assuring the people that if they rebuilt the temple, the glory of the Lord would return and they'd have unprecedented blessings. So they built the temple and they waited and there was no glory. Instead, we know there was famine, there was poverty, there was oppression, there was unfaithfulness to marriage vows, and unfaithfulness to the covenant vows, that testament that Jim talked about. And if you want to know about that, you can read that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, which, interestingly, are not put at the end, even though they happen at the end, but they're at the end of the historical section. Now, looking back, we know what happened about that predicted Messianic age. But there was a long time for them to wait what Malachi found and what he railed against was moral and spiritual laxity, pride, indifference, permissiveness, and scepticism. Now, does any of that sound familiar? Um, the French have an expression, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. That's the consequence of three years of high school French. That's the high point of my understanding. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This is why we can find relevance in a book that's 2,400 years old. But today, having now given you something of the start of the book, where it sits, I want to actually go to the end. That's where our reading was from. Next week, we'll come back and look at something in the middle. Now, you may be interested to know, if we turn to the next slide, Okay. Um, there's only three chapters in the Hebrew version of Malachi. Um, when the Septuagint was done, now uh, you may not have heard that term. We may have seen this thing called LXX, which was the 70 translators. This is when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. We think about 100 BC. Um, when they did that, they did two things that were very consequential for us. One was they divided Malachi. They chopped off the last few verses. So if you're looking at it in the Hebrew Bible, it just keeps on going. It's chapter 3 and the numbers... 19, 20, 21, etc. Um, but they also reordered all the books. Um, and so in our Bible and in the Septuagint, Malachi is the last book listed. Whereas in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually Chronicles. Um, and the beauty for us, in my opinion, is that by putting Malachi at the end, we're going to find this fabulous mention of John the Baptist right at the end. And then the first thing that happens in the New Testament, of course, John the Baptist is really nice. But maybe it's a bit of a fluke. Um, so we're going to look at the second, or the last few verses of chapter 3 to give us a bit of context, and then look at what chapter 4 has to say for us. So the accusations have been going on, this verse 13, I'm going to read from 13 to the end for you. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, What have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And those who feared the Lord talked with each other. This was a verse that Jim quoted. I thought it was verse 18, but it's verse 16. Very good. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion for and spares his son who serves him and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked because those who serve God and those who do not the premise is stated in verse 13 your words are strong against me says Yahweh in verse 13 um, depending on the translation Yahweh accuses his people of murmuring against him or speaking against him, or in this case speaking arrogantly. The translators struggle a little bit with this. And so in some of the older texts it's got this word murmuring. But one of the commentators wants to point out that we sort of think of murmuring as just people muttering and just grumbling at the back. This is not that. This is more. This is not just a disgruntled complaint. It's more like a bunch of military officers doing the preparation for a coup. This is setting up to break away. The prosperity of the wicked and the arrogant was a problem for the psalmists. They struggled with that a lot. You'll find that in Psalms. And it's a problem for the people in Malachi's day and for many Christians it's a problem as well. Basically in verse 14 the people are saying it doesn't pay to serve Yahweh. In verse 15, they're really asking the same question Habakkuk asked. Why does God allow these evil people to prosper? And also, Christians are still asking that question today. Now, this is a very transactional view of serving God. This is the what's-in-it-for-me view. The short answer we might give is, well, there's a lot. A relationship with God now and an eternity with him. But we know that there are sections of Christianity who are looking for blessings and prosperity now. We might have time to have a look at that next week. But in summary, my rather harsh answer to that attitude is we need to believe because it is the truth. Whether or not it's got any benefit in for you at all. You may not like the truth in many circumstances... Of your life but that doesn't change it jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and i think rigorous theological study exports that now i'm not trying to preach some sort of thankless grudging acceptance of god's um, authority and rights but ultimately the truth is the truth now i might have been annoyed when i got COVID, but merely saying i didn't want it didn't change anything Anyway, back to Malachi and we're at verse 16. We've got a contrast here with the righteous. So one of the problems that he's facing is the struggle with moral and theological values. No one seemed to be able to distinguish right from wrong or the righteous from the wicked. We've still got that problem now. Now, by definition, a righteous man in the Old Testament, in case you're interested, is a person who is faithful to his covenant relationships. The wicked, well, they were the enemy of those people. They broke their covenant and they sought unrighteous, unlawful gain at the righteous man's expense. Now, a righteous man in the New Testament, again, it's a covenant relationship, but this time, the new covenant, that relationship with Jesus. Next slide. Okay. So, we move to chapter 4, which is where we're reading from. And suddenly... um, as is the case in many other prophetic works, we sort of move really suddenly. There's this big transition to a section that brings warning and hope together. And I think maybe that's why those Septuagint translators decided to start a new chapter at this point. First, there's the warning, complete destruction. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire not a root or branch would be left in them. And I can tell you, I've been to a number of fires with the RFS over 40 years. Um, when the roots of trees get fire into them, that's a real problem. And they do. And it, uh, the fire then manages to travel through the ground and you think you've stopped it and you put it out and then suddenly it's a light over here again is a real problem. So trees do burn underground. And a little bit of a detour here in verse 2. I've put the quote up there. Um, Some of you may have been here on Christmas Day. Um, I talked, well, I thought I talked briefly, but my son told me I went on and on. So anyway. Um, I talk about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This is the verse that is the inspiration for Hail the Son of Righteousness, Light and Life to all he brings from verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. I think the only person who frolicked like a well-fed calf to at Christmas was my grandson. You may remember him in the front here dancing. I don't know what was wrong with him; he wouldn't shut up and stop. Okay. Um, now I don't think Micah knew how this was going to happen. Micah is just a conduit of a message. Something amazing is coming and God will honour the prophecies he's given to Isaiah. And then suddenly we come to those last three verses, if you want to look in your Bible, from four through to six. These are the appendices, the extra bits stuck on. Uh, verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to Horab for all Israel. Really odd. It's just put there... Don't forget though, is really what he's saying, I want you to remember your Bibles. Thank you Jim for talking about that. Then the second appendix. An oracle, that's a prophecy of the future. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Pretty tough stuff. Next slide. Okay, what's the point? of putting Elijah. Now, there were genuine Jewish expectations that Elijah would return. This was, of course, related to his unusual departure. Jim will remember how he went. Up. chariot of fire. When we think of chariots of fire, we think of blokes running along the beach and ethereal music and that sort of thing, Um, if you're old and can remember that film. Um, So, but Elijah disappeared in a chariot of fire and whirlwind... And the Jews waited for him to be redeployed, sent back to do some more work. But there's a slight complication here if you look at the uh, text. Verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 1 sounds like the Day of Judgment. Verse 5 talks about this great and terrible day of the Lord. Verse, four point, uh, verse 2 is clearly about the birth of Jesus. There seems to be this sort of jumbled message here. Now Elijah had been gone at this stage about 400 years and we know that there's going to be another 400 years before John the Baptist arrives. And Jesus did identify him as the forerunner. I'll talk about that in a minute. Could we be getting a return of Elijah twice? That's one argument. Now if we go to our New Testament and you only have to turn over a couple of pages to discover it chronologically, the first mention of Elijah is actually in Luke, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Gabriel turns up and appears to Zechariah, who's a priest in the, uh, probably not in the temple itself, but in a circuit of synagogues or other temples. And what we know is his turn is coming, and suddenly he's in the real temple. He's been drawn by lot, maybe the only time in his life. And the angel of the Lord appears to him, now, we think he's Mary's cousin-in-law, something like that. In that section, two verses specifically reference the words of Malachi. And uh, to read those from Luke 16 and and He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous... To make ready a people prepared for the law. Now, it's interesting and it's important to note that Gabriel doesn't say that this child is actually Elijah reincarnated. This is someone who will do God's work in the spirit and power of Elijah. If we go to John chapter 1, 19 to 28, John the Baptist is actually being questioned by the Pharisees and they ask him, Are you Elijah? He says, no, there's no reincarnation in the Bible. He is not Elijah. He also, in fact, denies being the prophet. And that's more troubling. And I wonder if he actually regarded himself not so much as a prophet, but someone who fulfilled prophecy. And certainly he does that and he does point them in his answer to the words of Isaiah. But in Matthew chapters 11, 14 and 17, 10 to 13, Jesus specifically says that John was the spiritual successor to Elijah. This prophecy has been fulfilled. But John the Baptist is not only like Elijah. John preached this message of repentance and baptism, and he uses imagery that's actually remarkably like that of Malachi. He also resembles the aspects of some of the other prophets... And he preached that the Messiah was coming. He chose to preach in the middle of nowhere. You can actually go and see this middle of nowhere. It's now got buildings there, of course. Um, and his clothing was deliberately countercultural. Next slide. Now, I think church history provides us with examples of others who've also preached in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And I wonder if, in fact, what we have is a type described here, a style of person that we are to look out for. I believe we've had a string of people who have warned and guided the people of God as they've lost their way along the the way. Some of these names we know well. Augustine, in the early centuries of the church. A bloke called Jan Hus, you can see his statue in Prague. He was uh, executed for trying to reform the church. Martin Luther, who managed to live and reform the church. John Calvin, a little bit later. William Carey, who completely changed the way that Protestants looked at mission and started to actually catch up with the Catholics who were light years ahead of them all over the world. Jonathan Edwards, who changed the fate of the US. Um, The Wesley Brothers, who did a similar thing in Britain. Perhaps we could look at Billy Graham during my lifetime. I'm sure that in fact many and perhaps most of the people that have done this are unknown to us. You note that I didn't have any women in my list but I'm sure their role is there but it just hasn't been highlighted as much in church history. All of these people have been used by the Holy Spirit to steer someone they knew or the wider church back to God. And that's a job for every person in this building, not just for John the Baptist, not just for those of us who are on the leadership team. We're a church that believes in the priesthood of all believers and I will talk more about that next week. So your role is not just to sit there and go, oh, well, that was an interesting enough talk or, and more likely, Richard went on a bit long again this morning, and then go and forget everything on the way home. We're fortunate our congregation is well read, you're well educated, you're well taught. I like to think you're well taught. taught. And you have the Holy Spirit who can help you to discern God's guidance for yourself, but also for us. If this church needs reminding about an area of failure... (coughs) or there's something that we should be doing better, that's a job for everyone here, to bring it to our attention. I mean, you can bring it to Jim or to me or to Drew. Drew's away on holidays. You'll notice that the entire um, Alexander clan is gone at the moment. They are camped up at Southwest Rocks, I think. hope they're having a nice time. I don't like the fact it's likely to rain all this week, though I might take the edge off it. Um, or anyone on the administrative team, Barbie, Vicky, Linda... Um, Gwen, Matt, yeah, you too can have a ministry like Elijah or John the Baptist. Now evangelism, of course, fits into that because evangelism challenges people's thinking. In a sense, that's what John was doing. Now it doesn't have to be loud and it doesn't have to be on a street corner. It can be reminding what God has done for you. Not everyone is ever going to be as gifted as Billy Graham but if you read in the book of Peter it says we've all got to be ready to give a defence of our faith. One small practical aspect that you saw on the screen earlier, in a fortnight we're going to meet to discuss that possible role for Chris and Carol Gentle. Now we pray for God's guidance and we pray in particular for God's guidance in our meetings And our aim is to see that through the hearts and minds of those who are present. Um, So I invite all of you here to be a part of that if you want to come along. Um, I'll admit that because we're a Baptist church, part of our constitution is there's a limitation on who can vote. But we do want to hear what everyone has to say. Um, And perhaps it's even more important if your opinion is different, your perspective perhaps different to others. Now... Don't really dress like John the Baptist, though I'll admit if you turn up at our farm when I'm working on the farm, I do dress a bit roughly. My wife likes to remind me. Um, but our society, like Malachi's, struggles with what is right and what is wrong. We are called by Jesus to be countercultural. Now, verse 18 of chapter 3 calls us. To demonstrate a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It tells us there is one. And we know that it isn't just wearing this outrageously scratchy clothing that John had. We need to be visibly different to those who do not know Jesus. And that's hard. Most of us want to be normal. You know, we mostly want to fit in. But we will be different because we're followers of the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' truth challenges what I'll call the standard Australian worldview. Today we've seen three brief examples, Malachi, Elijah and John the Baptist. All of them presented challenging messages and all of them will be counted among the righteous. Let's pray that we are counted among the righteous as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us the strength to be your people and to be different to others. Father, we pray that we are different, that we are living lives that can be described as those of the righteous and not like those of the wicked. Father, we pray for us as we live in a society where some of these descriptions are quite conflicted. Where we find ourselves often in difficult circumstances. But Father, we thank you that your compassion for us is eternal and overwhelming. And we thank you for the salvation that allows us to have the Holy Spirit and to live lives that can make a difference. Father, we pray that we may not be as loud and as visible as Elijah or John the Baptist, but Father, that we can make a difference. We pray that we do that for you and for your glory. Amen. Okay, I think we're going to sing again. Is that right?